Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Sydney. And this week's episode, featuring boring but not bland marine sponges, is to dive for. Hey, Sydney, how have you been? I'm doing well, Haley. How are you? You're in uh, Bermuda now? Yeah, I finally made it, and the Wi-Fi is so good, let me tell you. <laughs> oh my gosh, it has been a breeze recording these. <laughs> Man, I I never knew how much I could appreciate good Wi-Fi, but it's it's something, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, Do you have any ocean news for us this week? I do. First, tell me what you're doing. I'm in Bermuda. What are you up to? Oh, I am now on Long Island, hitting up some of my old stomping grounds, aka beaches on the north and south shore. Oh. Uh, getting some getting some birding in, you know, normal Sydney things. Mm-hmm. Um, Typical. And then, oh, I know. And then heading to australia on thursday when our um next episode or this episode drops so that's exciting how exciting that's so crazy um i know also i will say that and i've said this before but you've infected me with the whole birding thing um i not only run around little cayman now trying to figure out what birds are what but i also (laughs) Um, have fallen in love with this little bird here in Bermuda called the Kiskadi, and it is not native to here, which I thought it was, but I looked it up and it says that it was introduced here. can't exactly remember where it is native to, but my the reason I love it so much is that it's like probably like a six-inch tall bird with a bright yellow belly, and its call sounds like it's saying its name. In theory, yeah. in in practice, a little bit less, but in theory, it says "kiskity kiskity" every time it makes a call, and it's really cute. And I hear them all over the place. Like I just walk outside, and there's kiskities all over the place, and I I love it. So I just thought I'd oh my gosh. share that with you. I know. I think you accidentally sent me a photo of a kiskity um, the other day. I did. <laughs> And yeah. you're like, sorry, this wasn't for you. And I was like, um, who else are you sending birds to? How dare you betray me? <laughs> you said, actually, it was for me. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, speaking of birds, though, I learned how to communicate with owls this past week. Oh. I can now call barred owls and they respond to me. So. Oh, my gosh. Wait, can you do a call for us? Yeah. Sure. So the way to remember it is it sounds like who cooks for you, who cooks for you. So you go, oh my gosh, I love it. That's amazing. So if you're ever in the woods and not in the ocean for our listeners out there, um, go scream that at the top of your lungs on a hill and you might get a call back. That's super cool. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> um okay my marine 
fact, news fact, news piece, whatever, for the week, um, involves the creation of a new, like, tool that can be used to help solve one of our problems. Um, and this tool is a beach vacuum. So, allegedly, this beach vacuum can be used on, obviously, beaches, mostly sandy beaches, and it can pick up microplastics, um, and it will somehow filter out the microplastics and put the sand back on the beach so it, like, doesn't suck up everything. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and so it looks like it's a pretty hefty, like, like you wheel it out onto the beach. It's, like, pretty tall right now, um, but it says they're trying to come up with like a micro version that's in a backpack um and it yeah allows them to extract the microplastics which is super cool i i don't know i feel like a lot of times i'm not super aware of how big of a problem something is until i experience it personally and i think that's a pretty common mm -hmm. thing with humans this week i went swimming yeah. here in bermuda and i the bay that i was in was like the whole top layer was microplastics. Like, we got out of the water and our hair had microplastics in it. And I just wow. had never seen something like that. It was really surprising to me. So, yeah, that news piece comes a little bit out of my experience there. I was going to say, when I was in Little Cayman, we did some beach cleanups. Um, and I can't remember what end of the island it was, but... There was so much plastic, like the whole beach was covered. You could not walk in any sand, and that was the worst I'd ever seen ocean pollution. And most of that plastic doesn't come from the island, because, what, you have less than 100 people living there at a time, and they can only ship, they only have certain amenities on the island, so it's not coming from them. So it was just really interesting to see all of this plastic from other parts of the world, look at the labels where they came from, and they all ended up on this little remote island, and now Little Cayman has to deal with that. Yeah, that brings up, like, the topic of environmental justice, which is such a big deal. Um, this idea that most of the time, or not most of the time, but oftentimes people who are contributing the most to environmental problems are not the ones who are suffering the most as a result. Um, and there's like this mm -hmm. disproportionate experience between those who get to contribute to, you know, through the convenience of fossil fuels or plastics or whatnot, contribute to this problem, but aren't um, being, for example, driven out of their homelands by sea level rise as quickly as some of the um, countries that are not contributors as in such a big way to fossil fuels. So, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know that I did a great job of explaining that, but environmental justice is a huge deal. And, yeah. It is. Well. Well. On a totally different topic, <laughs> we'll just take a yes. 180 here and hopefully cheer everybody up because this week we have an interview with a great friend of ours um, who makes us laugh, makes us smile, and just has one of the most amazing personalities and we know that you will love her hopefully as much as we do get ready for some sponges <laughs> my name is greer bab pronouns oh she her 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 she and originally i'm actually from omaha nebraska um 
ended up doing uh, most of my undergrad at a tiny school in western Nebraska called Shadron State College. Shout out to the Eagles. Um, I moved down to Florida, uh, actually only a month or so after I graduated and have kind of been living in Florida on and off in different places since. Uh, I, I did like a six months in Florida, six months home, and then came back to Florida and really haven't moved anywhere else since. So, yeah. So we always open the podcast with asking, what drew you to the water? That's a great question. Another big shout out. Uh, so growing up in Omaha, Nebraska, I am a long ways away from the ocean. Uh, however, um, I know that there are some different views on zoos and aquariums. Um, but I have an incredible zoo that I grew up around there in Omaha uh, called the Omaha Henry Drury Zoo and Aquarium. And that aquarium meant so much to me and really pulled me in at different parts of my life. Like I was, I was a huge fan of the zoo ever since I was a kid. At six years old, I would bring a notebook with me to the zoo and rate all of the species I found because I was a super nerd. Um, I'm way cooler than that now, but you know, I was six. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, at uh, uh, at the aquarium, they had this beautiful setup before you went through the zoo, before you went through the rest of the aquarium that had this Mannheim steamroller song uh, that played in the background of this beautiful track of all the different oceans around the world. Anyway, that was a big deal to me growing up. Um, and then uh, did several different internships and uh, different um, jobs at the Omaha Henry Dorley Zoo uh, between high school and through undergrad and uh, had opportunities to be back behind the scenes in the aquarium and I found myself like really interested in these organisms that were living in the ocean and how um, the ocean uh, how the water uh, parameters made a difference on which species were where. I found that really really interesting pretty early on and uh, because I just kept coming back to the ocean. It wasn't really the first hit, but, or like, wasn't like, I, still even after the, the uh, my internship at the aquarium, I was like, I was mostly excited about it, but I wasn't really sure. And then my first job was in the Florida Keys at Sea Camp, um, another really cool place that I'll give a shout out to, Sea Camp Incorporated in the uh, Big Pine Key. And, um, yeah, I haven't left. <laughs> That's amazing. I love how many of our guests come from places that I, like, wouldn't expect. We have so many people who have become incredible dive professionals, marine scientists, who started so far from the ocean. Um, and, yeah, I just love that. I think it's it's beautiful and surprising and also like gives me encouragement that we do have um, like a diverse source of people coming into the diving and marine science industry obviously we could do better um not saying that diving is the most diverse on the planet but um it gives me encouragement that we you know the marine science and diving realms are reaching all the way to people who came from nebraska that's amazing 
Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I was dive certified my open water in a rock quarry in Iowa. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you've heard that versions of that story too. I know lots of people who got their open water in rock quarries, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, can relate. We gotta we gotta start getting like a map of um and like marking off everyone where they're from that we interview. I love this. To dive for a or, map. Or like a where you got dive certified or even just like a, a where you've dove. Like this is where the to dive for yeah. guests have dove. You can have a little map. That would be so fun. Yeah. Okay, Greer. Tell us a little bit about your current job and position. What are you doing now? Sure. Um, maybe the viewers know this. All three of us were at the same graduation ceremony from Harbor Branch, um, including myself. So I have I have my master's, and um, I currently work at a different lab than where I had conducted my master's out of um, with uh, Brian Lapointe. Um, our work. Uh, focuses around macroalgae and uh, water column nutrients and um, looking at eutrophication in particular systems. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you still work at Harbor Branch, but you work in a different um, like study area than you used to. And what is your job title now? Yes. I'm a research coordinator. Yeah. I kind of got to get used to saying that. Yeah, I uh, it still feels weird sometimes saying that I have a master's degree, so I'm sure having a title as big as research coordinator must be hard to hard to say sometimes. <laughs> you know, I don't I'm not great about saying research coordinator, but whenever I introduce anyone myself to anyone, I'm saying anyone. I say I just got a master's in marine science. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, you as should. you should. You earned it. <laughs> Yeah. So currently you study um, like algaes, macroalgaes mostly. Okay. Um, And for some of the listeners, I don't know exactly who all is listening, but you you actually may know Brian LaPointe because he's actually done quite a number of like TV interviews about the sargassum patches that have been seen out in the Sargasso Sea that have been coming towards Florida and the Caribbean um, over the past couple months. And I'm sure Greer can school me on explaining that. I gave a really shitty explanation of it. But um, yeah, so Brian LaPointe, who Greer works for now, um, you may know him. And Greer, what did you do before? Like, you studied algae now, but what did you study before that? Before I was in this lab, uh, my master's was predicated around sponge ecology questions, which I really love. Um, but I but I'm excited to be here too, where like sponges were brand new to me by the time I came here to do sponges for my master's, and uh, algae is brand new to me. Uh, but I I do love this stuff, and I come with a certain amount of enthusiasm and charisma, and I think. I think I think in a couple of months here I'll feel really cool about algae, but I do miss sponges. I, I really miss sponges. What is what is so captivating to you about sponges? Tell us. What is a sponge? Tell us. A sponge is is indeed an animal. Um, they do not have true tissues. 
Um, there's there's actually a couple of papers that keep getting thrown around in my face that like are looking at which animal came first, sponges versus oh, sponges or phylum periphera versus um oh tinafores. People are like, oh, tinafores came first, and it's like this huge jostling fight now. The drama. Sponges always bring up a lot of drama. <laughs> um, I was going to say, at every conference, there is sponge drama. There is. Uh, that's another thing. But um, I, do, I do love that they're so primitive and yet like have, have this incredible diversity. We're talking about um, close to 10,000 species worldwide. Uh, they live in a large variety of environments, freshwater, saltwater, you see them in caves, you see them in Arctic and polar waters, and obviously, or not obviously, but also on coral reefs. Um, you see them in the Indian River Lagoon, <laughs> which is a, a large estuary that, uh, that sits on the eastern coast of Florida, where I do a lot of work between my masters and being here. A lot of work is done out of the Indian River Lagoon. But um, their spicules are so amazing too. So, so sponges take in water and take in the nutrients that they want and then they dispel leftover water. Part of what they're going to take in is silicate and they use this to make these hard skeletal structures that help form the the shape of the overall sponge what do the skeletal structures look like like could you describe one they look like um really tiny like i'm looking at under microscopes all the time pieces of glass underwater but like very very specific structures for the most part and, and there's and there's hundreds of of different types and just because you have the same three types of spicules in a particular specimen, the range of their size is also very important to understand which species you're looking at. It's, it's pretty intricate stuff. A, a lot of my master's um, was happily spent under uh, a microscope looking at, looking at hundreds, thousands, maybe, maybe, maybe close to a million. No, I don't, I don't know. Just loads and loads of spicules. I, I do, I do love them. Perhaps with my, um... So there's these little tiny pieces of glass that live in sponges, and sponges can live in all these different places. And a sponge is an animal. Because there are certain, not all of them, but there are certain species that are even particularly uh, cosmopolitan, meaning that you'll see the sponge uh, more readily um, in different environments or different global locations. For example, Hymeniocidon perleves is a species that is found, like, uh, th there was a lot of skepticism. This paper came out uh, in 2020, uh, I think the first author or the author was Turner was the name um, and they had found that this species had been distributed likely by uh, ships and, and things for many number of years and lives fairly globally around the world and so um, there's been a lot of uh, when you look at taxonomic grouping of organisms <laughs> a mean way to just or like a, a mean very big not mean but an interesting way to, to describe a taxonomist and how they're going to deal in taxonomy is either a grouper or a splitter. I've worked with a number of splitters. Splitters ultimately find particular traits 
and argue, not argue, but find evidence for splitting a number of species into more species or, or a number of groups into finer groups where groupers are going to collapse that. That's super interesting. I think the same can be true in corals where like, I mean, with any taxonomist. So for viewers, taxonomy is like the study of how organisms are related to each other. So what came first, what things are grouped together, what's more similar. So the genus and species name are two of the categories within taxonomy. They're taxonomic groups. Um, and so in corals, I know there are certain, like, honestly, there are certain genuses that I just, like, group together. I just, Like all of, which nobody's going to probably know what I'm saying here, but all of the agaricias, I, like, look at them and I'm like, Mm, you're just an agaricia like i don't really mm. <laughs> which is a whole genus of corals but i and there's some species but there's also been like speculation about whether they're all actually species or not and so i just like kind of look at them and i'm like Meh, agaricia <laughs> i mean that's what it sounds like it is in australia because there's so many species of corals compared to the caribbean which we're used to so they just go by the genus level. Yeah. That's my understanding so far. What's nice and something that we can do as young scientists and what we've probably learned to rely on is that molecular data. And like even, you know, even 30 years ago, that molecular data was so expensive to yeah. get your hands on. So some of these yeah. other really amazing refined uh, technologies that we have to make identification that much stronger is, is really fun. It's also a bit of a headache <laughs> when you take everything into account as someone who's done a lot of combined strategies to get IDs down. R really quick, just to finish an idea, just that Hemidiacidon prolevase has now like had this huge grouping that's occurred in the last, where, where a number of um, specimen are considered that because that's what they that's what they had been all along. Um, so you're saying with the hemidias, heminiacidon prolevis, with that guy. <laughs> I feel so cool. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you sound so cool. So that sponge has spread all around the world and all of these different researchers from across the world were identifying it as something different but then when they realized that it was a similar specimen and they like all compared notes they actually realized it was the same organism so they grouped all these different species into say like actually just kidding they were all the same animal all along is that right more or less yeah more or less yeah that sounds really that's so crazy um so what is morphology? We keep mentioning like you've used morphological and molecular approaches and you can totally go more into that, but could you kind of like define those a little bit? Yeah. So molecular approaches are using morphological or physical aspects of an organism. For example, if you wanted to identify uh, Babby Greerus, that's the pun of my <laughs> name, like I'm six foot two and I have curly hair. And like, if you saw someone shorter or, you know, didn't have curly hair, like that's not, that's not me. Right. Um, so in terms of sponges, you're using color, you're using the shape of the sponge in its natural environment. Is it something that's boring into 
um, substrates like calcium carbonate? Is it just sitting on top of substrate, an encrusting species? So we have boring that I just mentioned getting into calcium carbonate. That uh, plays a lot of jokes at sponge conferences, the boring sponge. <laughs> you have encrusting sponges that live like just at the surface. They can be incredibly thin. And you have large little bait things, which people probably have a larger, they're like more of an eye for. Little vase, there's lots of vase sponges. We have our giant barrel sponge, which now, now you guys might know the scientific name for that. I really... Zestospongia muta. Boom. I can never remember yeah. the species <laughs> epithet. But um, those things, you know, huge vase sponges. You can, like, I, well, barrel, whatever. I can, like, get inside of some of these monsters when they're, when they're really big. And I'm, once again, six foot two with fins on. That's pretty impressive. I don't try to. <laughs> you're just saying, in your head, you're like, ah, yes, I could fit in you. Unlike cats, when divers fits, we don't sits. That's, that's the rule. Like cats yeah. find boxes and they sit in them, but divers we can't sit in sponges. It's not the same rules. Not okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so and and then um once again coming back to these spicules, I don't think I highlighted this very well. Not all not all sponges have these spicules, but there's a large portion of them that do. And of those well, and then you can use like um Spongin makes these sort of intricate fibers that aren't this uh, that aren't the silicon based um, spicules that I'm referring to. It's something else. You can also use those a little bit for identification. If you wanted to identify Babi Greerus using molecular methods, what would that look like? Um, so I and sponges have DNA that can be used to identify down to species. In the case of the sponges, we used a particular technique called barcoding, where you look for um, a specific, uh, in our case, we looked for two specific genes and checked for how closely those were related to each other um, between the other samples. and samples in a gene bank where other scientists had already identified particular species to their to a species level uh, as sort of a sounding board to get these guys mm-hmm. identified at least as closely as possible and this kind of work and with a group of a group like sponges that has less people <laughs> um on their side and studying them there's still a lot of work to be done in that in that uh, gene bank. I didn't realize how much of this time I was gonna spend talking about sponges. <laughs> I feel like no, I love it. Honestly, it's kind of I I honestly I was hoping we would talk a lot about sponges because yeah, you're like the sponge girl, and I love it. You know so many things about, it. and you're you're now the algae girl. Like you you are a dynamic research girly. I have a small tangent. You had mentioned symbi- symbionts, um, mm-hmm. these these um, these small microbial organisms that live in between the cellular matrix of the sponge. And I did want to point out that there are a number of chemicals made by those microbes that are used 
uh, and medicines and that are still being stud studied for medical uh, procedures um, and, and uh, medicines. And um, that is also cool. It is not what I care to study for my love of sponges. My love of sponges comes from other places, but obviously a really important um, thing to mention and um, where does where does your love of sponges come from, Greer? Under the microscope, or excuse me, or <laughs> or I re I really do love asking like their larger ecological questions. And frankly, one of the reasons why I'm most excited, I know I've talked a lot about sponges and what I've done with my masters. Well, sort of more about sponges in general, but um, I do really enjoy that that border. Uh, between the biological and the chemical in our ocean waters. So getting to work with organisms like sponges, really simple. You're taking straight from water. Um, what's in the water is going to be imperative. It's an obviously imperative for any organism living in that set of water, but it's, it's bare bones right there biologically stricken, right? Um, same mm -hmm. with algae. So really i'm really interested in sort of those basic um organisms and how they directly are impacted by uh water uh parameters and and uh other components that uh involve that are that are in the water <laughs> no i like that explanation i feel like one of the interesting things about those more, pr more primitive organisms um and i kind of consider corals to be amongst those organisms is that they don't have the same things that you and i have and um that we have this ability to to kind of control our internal environment separately from our external environment right so like having those tissue layers having um like an internal we have our own internal salinity, basically, right? Like how salty or how many ions are present in all of our fluids. We have an internal temperature that's different from the outside temperature. We have all these different things that are maintained within our bodies that are so different from whatever we're in, whatever, whether we're in water or air. Um, and sponges and, and simple organisms like corals and uh, algaes don't really have the same kind of capability to control their internal environment differently from what's going on around them. And so it makes their relationship to the water quality very, very um, direct and important, like you were saying, Greer, um, in a way that like maybe having high nitrogen isn't going to bother me if I'm swimming around in water with a lot of nitrogen in it. My body's not going to care the same way that like a coral would. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I find that I find that really fun and exciting, and um, I think I think for the most part, I'll I'll always be a benthic Betty. Um, yep, <laughs> Caroline coined that, so I shouldn't say it. <laughs> Caroline's a friend of ours. Uh, benthic organisms, I think, are really fun, and then like really primitive invertebrates, things that do not have a backbone, etc. The further I, the longer I can do my career without having to do too much with invertebrates, or with vertebrates, the better. <laughs> We're all kinds of reasons, yep. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to ask some diving questions. Okay, Greer. 
Tell us a little bit about how diving intersects with your work, either your master's work on sponges or some of the work you're doing now with algae. I am so bonkers grateful, excited, and like lucky that my, you know, I dive for work. I've dove for work for a really long time now. Um, on and off, there's been a few pocketed dry spells or places where like if I would have had more diving experience under my belt, I could have done some cooler things with previous labs. But um, in the last few years, it's been a huge integral part of my work. Um, for uh, my master's, I had a two chapter master's. Um, the first chapter, we only collected sponges in the Indian River Lagoon where we were able uh, to do it while snorkeling. Um, what I did for chapter two was an assessment of sponges from the Indian River Lagoon and comparing uh, diversity amongst a number of water parameters between the Indian River Lagoon and uh, uh, the northern reaches of the Florida Reef Tract in a, in a and you can tell I've defended it recently-ish, but, <laughs> but in, at this reef called uh, St. Lucie Reef, um, and uh, we were counting the number of individuals and the number of species within uh, a one by one meter quadrat, like per diver, and um, that that was that's really intense stuff. Even even in four feet of water, like we found in the Indian River Lagoon, it kind of was best to keep diving so you could do, to do it under scuba, so that you were counting everything. You knew where you last counted. You were with your quadrat the entire time and you know depending on the time of year and uh the uh how how good someone might be at observing these sponges and being able to identify them in the field you're looking at you know a good 30 minutes with one quadrat um so um this last week i was super fortunate and uh, my, so Brian, Brian LaPointe is the PI in my lab. My like next superior is Rachel Bruton and, um, she worked really hard to make it possible so that everyone in our lab could go and we were all able to do, um, one dive on 10 different reefs there in the Florida Keys. It was an incredible experience. Super That's great. Amazing. Yeah. Super incredible. Um, where uh, we collected a number of um, number of components for a project uh, being done in the Keys. So, um, you know, I, I was diving several times a month uh, for over a year for my master's. Um, and uh, I, I don't think diving will be a huge component with this new job, especially comparable to what I did for my master's, but, you know, I'm, I haven't even been here for a full month and I already got to do a whole week of diving. So I guess we'll get to do a little bit of it, which is awesome. That's so fun. So what level of dive training do you have to be able to do this job? I have a scientific diver certification, um, which was way more intricate than I thought it was going to be initially. It makes sense. Um, but, uh, you know, you're not just diving for diving's sake. You, you, you have to, there's other things you have to focus on and you have to learn how to focus on other things while also taking your vitals, right? Um, it's a lot. You, you gals know that. Um, yeah, that's a good way to say that, though, is like I know, learning I like how that. to focus on other things while checking your vitals, which is like exactly what it is. It's, you know, 
doing all the other stuff and then also remembering to check your air and your no deco time and you know whatever i've been really excited with my experience diving for my project because uh with my masters because i feel that um i i won't lie and i think all of us at some, no i don't want to assume um i'm a bossy person and i and i don't i don't want to be i don't mean to be but when it comes down to it, I I really want to boss everyone around. I'm very good at not doing it in a rude way, but like, uh, so I had the opportunity to very much be, I was given the opportunity and really learned some skills from various people on how, on how to lead these dives and how to like be a leader. And being a leader is different than being bossy. And I know that that was mostly a joke, but I, I was really excited about um, learning those skills and, and getting to do more of that uh for sure and i think um anyone who goes under the water um you know you're always in a buddy system but uh there's there's a leadership component that's got to come from everyone to get everyone to have a good safe dive i think i want to reiterate that Greer is absolutely joking about being bossy because Greer is literally one of the kindest people I know. I have said it over and over, and I'll say it again, that Greer was one of the first people to make me feel unbelievably welcomed at Harbor Branch. So, um, yeah, she might be jokingly bossy, and she is loud and charismatic in the most beautiful of ways but don't let her fool you for a second she's a big old softy <laughs> you know okay do you mind if yeah. i intervene really quick and just say something yeah go for it although a scientific diver now i had a really weird weird trail of the of of the the timing of getting my certain certifications which I think is worth pointing out. These were, the reason for this weirdness is due to some of the professional decisions I had to make kind of early on after graduating, but I got my open water. Then I got my rescue diver, which is not typically how that goes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was honestly very useful and I ended up sort of just like for free taking a rescue diver at another time after I had my advanced, which makes more sense. So I did like advanced nitrax and a retraining of um, my rescue diver all at the same time, like later. And now I have scientific diver. Anyway, just wanted to point that out. I, I think that's weird and I just that's really cool. wouldn't recommend it either. It's yeah. always good to have those rescue skills early on and like the way I learned it the first time really did help with a lot of stuff. I was gonna say, yeah. I want to well, dive with you. You've got two, basically two rescue classes and then the rescue class that we did with AUS. So There's a huge rescue component to that too, right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, anyway. So. <laughs> yeah no I was gonna say it's cool that you've done rescue basically three times now like I feel like that gives you a lot of experience with like the skills are you do you find yourself to be really comfortable with those skills compared to like maybe some of your peers who've only done it once or so yes and no um yes for the most part like if if, if something were to really go down or like trying to problem solve and practice scenarios. Yes. Taking quizzes. No. <laughs> Fair. 
Fair enough. Yeah, quizzes don't matter when it's a real-life situation, so. True. Um, okay, can I ask you one more serious question, and then we can get to the fun questions? I was already having fun. Is that okay? Ugh. Not allowed. No, no fun is allowed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, are... In your experience, like, in your career so far, have there been any, like, major challenges that you've faced? And how, like, can you tell us a little bit about how you overcame those challenges? 6'2 is weird. 6'2 is tough. 6'2 is not 6'10. My father is 6'10. And I got, I convinced him and my mom to get dive certified. My dad doesn't have as many dives under his belt because he's also had a number of eye surgeries in the last year that's impeded his ability to uh, add pressure to his face. But um, uh, some of some of the, um, it, it's getting better in terms of like finding gear and stuff that fits, fits well. I was really concerned about the BCDs, especially women's BCDs. I feel like, uh, I feel like when I was wearing, yeah, it was like, uh, they're all scrunched up just right around your tits. So then like you already have this fatty tissue like there and I still have all this leg and all of this muscle behind me that like always felt like it was drooping and all of my air, you know, all of the BCD stuff was like right around my tits. I, I finally did find a BCD that was, like, kind of geared for tall people, and I've recommended it. I think my dad owns the same one at this point. Long BCD that I felt, like, really, really fit uh, my body well. Um, I still I still feel like, for as many dives as I have under my belt, that I still struggle with buoyancy. And I'm sure some of that is, is um, not specific to being 6'2", but I can't help but think that a little bit of it is a little bit related. Yeah. I will say that I always tell people buoyancy is something you're going to work on every single dive for the rest of your life. Like I, every time I have students come to my classes and be like, but my buoyancy, it's so hard. And I'm like, yeah, like it is. It's just, it's, we're not used to it and it's not natural. And like, I know people who have hundreds of dives who still will go out, including myself and like have a crap buoyancy dive. And like, <laughs> like there have definitely been days that I just am like, wow, I'm all over the place. Like, is it my first day? I don't know if I really have any ways that I've, gotten past it but i just thought it was an interesting perspective yeah i think buying gear that like helps your body type and, and suits your body type it's a good I piece like of it. advice i was gonna ask um have you had to use like ankle weights or anything different no i had thought about it for a minute um but i if anything i wish i had like ankle balloons right oh or like my BCD would also shoot down some air towards my ankles, so they were just a little bit less off the ground, <laughs> off the reef kind of thing. Yeah, but um, but my buoyancy does get better all the time. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe a butt pillow. There we go. All right, Sid, on to some you. Some silly questions. Silly question time. Heck yeah. Silly. Okay. <laughs> um, what is your best 
dive, snorkel, or water-related story. And it can be when you are working or just recreating. Well, one of my favorites, I wasn't really doing anything that exciting in terms of, like... Yeah, tell us. So I was snorkeling, one of my favorite, like, really getting to know Florida stuff. I just, I just lived the last, like, six months or so in the Keys. And I had seen all this stuff. And mind you, this little thing, you know, tall thing, whatever, from Nebraska comes down. And, like, I was at Lou Key, like, twice a week because of the job that I had. Like, what in the hell? Like, how exciting and how cool is that, right? You'd think I'd seen it all. So we were driving, um, me and a friend. I was driving. I was going to drive home. Um, so I drove her to Austin, Texas. And then I drove... Uh, to Omaha after that but we took like we were gonna visit some friends and go ding 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 so um the first day we got from Big Pine and we left early enough in the morning that we could make it to Crystal River and check out some manatee because both me and my friend uh Ricky had not seen manatee or like hadn't seen them that much I actually like barely saw them in the Keys anyway so was really excited to see a manatee, my little Nebraska heart. So first off, first off, we call uh, Crystal River is a uh, spring water fed. This water stays 65, relatively close to that, like all year round, right? But when you've been living in the Keys in bikinis all summer, like not even wearing like a uh, skin for while you're diving. When the dive company calls you and they're like, what size are you for uh, wetsuits? We were both like, no wetsuits. Don't do it. We don't need that. I know it's going to be 65. <laughs> That'll feel refreshing to us. No, all the divers listening to this are like, cringe, you idiots. This is stupid. So we we get there and luckily the dive shop took did not listen to us, did not care for a cocky toad, and had... It had wetsuits for us regardless. So we get out on the boat in these wetsuits, chitter-chattering because this is the coldest water we had been in since, like, a cold shower four months ago. And it was really, whatever. I don't I can't even. It was so cold. We get there. All kinds of I told you so moments. And um, once again, I haven't mentioned it enough. I'm six foot two. And we're snorkeling around. We were told, like, there's manatee. You saw the video. You can get X amount of space. Do not touch, blah, blah, blah. So uh, so I'm coming up on this manatee, and I'm sizing myself up. And I'm like, okay, you ain't that scary. Not that manatee is scary. Manatee are obviously awesome <laughs> and very sweet animals. Not that you should play with animals, but, um, you know, give them their space. But, um... <laughs> I was, like, sizing myself up, and I was, like, this thing is, like, my height, you know, my length. This isn't bad. And then as I was, like, thinking that and feeling so comfortable, I, I turned over, and there's mom at 13 feet. And I was, like, ah! <laughs> I, like, screamed and, like, paddled a few. And I said, Greera, get your crap together. There's children on board who saw this thing and didn't react to this way. I had to, like, regroup. And then I think I lied to the captain. I was like, oh, I just saw Gar. That was huge. That's what, that's what I was reacting like that. <laughs> it wasn't the larger manatee that just eats seagrass and isn't going to touch me. Yeah, it wasn't that. <laughs> there was a gator down there. <laughs> yeah. 
The other day, I saw a nurse shark, yeah. and I don't know what was up with me, but I was, like, just kind of in a jumpy headspace, and when I saw it coming at me, like, off the bottom, I was in, this was still in Florida, I did everything that you're not supposed to do. I, like, started kicking frantically at the surface. I, like, was freaking out, <laughs> and Lawrence was like, what is wrong with you? And I was like, she's a nurse shark! I was like, okay? <laughs> I had the same, like, oh, the manatee. Like, it was just, like, I was like, that's humiliating. I should not have. It was ridiculous, but it was really funny. Yeah, but I, I think manatee are so cool. Once again, i not really a vertebrate gal, but I think manatee are so cool. I don't think, I don't think I'll get over manatee. I certainly am not over them yet. Yeah, that's fair. I love it. My first time ever seeing one was my first time at Harbor Branch. My first day, I was like, while I'm in Florida, I really want to see a manatee. And then someone in my lab was just like, and I was like, no, like, I'm dead serious. And then they were like, well, wait till lunch. And I was like, what do you mean? And we just walked outside and there was like 50 manatees in the canal. And I was like, well, I guess this is my life now. Like, I guess I just see manatees for lunch every day. It's crazy. It can be that beautiful and that simple. <laughs> Pretty cool. I miss those potatoes. Ugh, so potatoey. I'll tell them you said so. Okay, oh please do. Um. Okay. What is one of your passions or hobbies outside of work? Who Who is Greer? What does she do? Um, Greer does a number of things. I I have been recently doing some painting. I started, I started doing that like a year ago. I like that. I'm not, I'm not great, but I do enjoy it. Um, I think it's fun. I like being outside, so I do what? a lot of outdoorsy stuff. Yeah? What does Greer like to watch on TV? Oh, <laughs> do you want to talk about RuPaul? Kinda. I do love me some RuPaul's Drag Race. I do love Drag Race. I was actually the pot, one of the podcasts I've been listening to a lot lately is um, the Bald and the Be- Beauty and the Bald. Um, that's Trixie Montel and uh, Katya. Ooh. And for some reason, that's the best I can do right now. I hope they like this podcast. You should just send it to them. We'll, we'll just send them a copy. <laughs> I did almost dedicate my masters to RuPaul. But um, a good friend of mine uh, convinced me out of it, and I'm glad she did. But um, I still might write RuPaul an essay. Or just try to find a way to convince her to let me be on the show. <laughs> to season 16! Let's go! Excuse me, RuPaul, do you need a sponge specialist on this episode? Because I feel like you guys could really, you're lacking that sponge expertise. Yeah. Just, just just for a, for yes. a mini challenge, even. I, 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 would, I would come on to their show for a mini challenge. Yeah, yeah of course. But, yeah, I do, I do love TV. I do love RuPaul. Speaking of things you love, what is your favorite marine organism? Is it a sponge? Tadania ignis? It might be Tadania ignis, yeah. Tadania ignis Tadania. <laughs> is commonly known as the fire sponge. 
Um, she is bright red, has huge, beautiful oscula, um, and is one of the first sponges I ever learned to ID, both spicually and visually. And not only <laughs> did I mention at my defense that it would be the winner of RuPaul's Drag Race, <laughs> I also um, spelled out a really inappropriate word. <laughs> I wasn't thinking because Tadania has the charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent to make it through. <laughs> um, our final question is, after all this time, what keeps you coming back to the water? It's so blue. No, I'm just kidding. It's really lame. Um, <laughs> yeah. The sponges. <laughs> yeah? No, no. Uh... Maybe all those things. Maybe my Mannheim Steamrollers, the, the song that just used to play. Yeah. I don't think you're gonna get a coherent answer out of me. It's just, it, but but I do I do really love diving and being in the ocean and being a part of it and getting to see it at its fullest. Ugh. The ocean makes you speechless. There you go. We'll go with that. I love it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you so much, Greer, for coming on our podcast this week. Thank you, Greer. We miss you. Miss you guys, <laughs> too. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of this. I've been super excited to get to uh, finally be on, and I'm really happy to have been here and been invited. I appreciate you all greatly. Yeah. We love hearing about your sponges. sponges. So thank you for sharing. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to head on over to our website where you can find information on submitting your great stories for our Fish Tales episodes. Those will come out about once a month and you can find the form to submit your stories online. Our website is under titleteasapparel.com. There's a little header at the top that says to dive for a podcast. And if you hit that link, we also have merch for sale. And you can also find us on Instagram at to dive for podcast and on Facebook as well. Don't forget to like and follow and share with your friends. See you guys next week. Bye. Okay, so this week's fish fact is also not a fish. I keep bringing you guys facts that are not about fish. Sorry. Um, so this one is on sponges. So a fun fact is that some deep water sponges can live to be over 200 years old. Crazy. So I know. Yeah. So there's your, uh, your sponge fact of the week. Enjoy. <laughs>